Hello and welcome to We Read This. Uh, today's going to be a new kind of episode. I've been brainstorming recently ways to make the podcast a bit more regular. Uh, the reason it's not regular is partly because we're not very organised and partly because the episodes that I do on my own, which are the episodes on Shakespeare or recently the episodes on um, metamorphosis-related books, take a lot of work. There's a lot of reading, obviously, note-taking, and then compiling and writing the scripts. Those are all scripted. Um, and I wasn't sure at first whether to keep them scripted. Uh, the first few definitely sounded quite stiff because I was reading off a page. Even though they sound scripted, um, I think it's better to, to have them that way. I'd rather know that I was getting the information I wanted to get in there across um, than pick a book that means a lot to me that I want to talk about and then just turn the mic on, on and, and ramble for an hour because I think that would just basically waste your time and test your patience. Uh, so I, I want to keep doing those, but realistically, I, I can't do one of those a week or one of those um, a fortnight even um, not whilst trying to have a life um, as outside of content. So I, I've been trying to come up with ways of doing something that takes a little bit less work up front. And so I hit on the idea of talking about something short, um, poem, uh, short story, articles, uh, come across so much good criticism in preparing for this podcast that there's plenty of articles that I'd, I'd love to talk about in their own right. So taking something short and then making, instead of a 30 or 40 minute script, just a side of notes and talking about it off the cuff, but hopefully uh, still in some depth. So we'll see how it goes anyway. The one possible advantage is that um, it might make the podcast a bit more interactive uh, with those of you listening. We'd like in the past to have said... You know, give us some book ideas that you want us to talk about. But realistically, it was never going to happen. We have to plan so far in advance that we we know what we're going to be talking about in a few months' time. So even if you write in suggesting a book that either I love or both Adam and I love and think, oh, yeah, great, let's talk about that, you know, it would be months until it, it came up. So it's just not feasible, really. Uh, however, doing something like this, something shorter where my prep time has been you know, a couple of hours writing up some, some notes and then and then recording. Um, it is feasible. And if you if you write in saying you'd like to hear a, an episode on a certain poem, certain short story or anything like that, please do. Um, good time to mention Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, eerydis at gmail.com if you want to send any uh, suggestions like that, go for it. Um, so it might feel strange. It already seems a little bit strange to not be reading. I'm just, um, I've got, like I say, I've got a page of notes. Uh, and I feel like I'm going to be erring a lot. Um, I apologise. I'm going to try and keep a check on it. Perhaps, though, it's uh, fitting that the poem I've picked is called, apologies for pronunciation, De Puero Balbutenti, Balbutenti um, by Thomas Bastard. Now, it's not in Latin, um, the poem itself, but the title is. It means the stammering child or the stuttering child. Seems fitting for a... Um, first run up at an off-the-cuff-ish podcast. Now, the reason I picked it, uh, those of you who listened to the, the Foul Papers episodes and have uh, heard the Keeping Up With The Goodreads Challenge where Adam and I pretty much pick a stupid word and see what comes up on Goodreads and, and, and what book titles it features in, you might think that I've chosen this purely by putting the word bastard into some index of poets or poetry, but it's actually not true. 
Um, I've been reading a great book that I've been looking out for for ages recently called The Force of Poetry by Christopher Ricks. And it's, I think it's out of print, but I, I found it in a, in a secondhand bookshop recently. And it's been one of the best books I've read this summer. But it also made me look up um, or dig out my old copy of the Oxford Book of English Verse, which is edited by Christopher Ricks, and have a little skim through that. And as I did so, I found this poem, Del Puero Balbutente, Balbutente, Balbutiente, I don't know, someone will be able to correct me, by Thomas Bastard. Obviously, the name jumped out, but also did his uh, dates. He was born in 1566, and he died in 1618. This makes him almost exactly a contemporary of Shakespeare's. He was born two years after Shakespeare and died two years after Shakespeare died. I didn't know anything about Thomas Bastard beforehand, um, so I've I've looked up, there's some pretty bare-bones facts available. Uh, He was a epigrammist. He published a book of um, hundreds of epigrams, um, this poem included, and he was a reverend. And he ran into some bother when he published a admonition of other Oxford clergymen for sexual misdeeds, and he was then expelled um, and ended up dying in a debtor's prison. So quite a quite a colourful biography. Seven or so years after he was expelled, he published his book of epigrams, um, and now seems a good reason to a good moment to read the poem out. If you want to either read along or just be able to check the poem as I go on to talk about it. I'm going to post it on Instagram and Facebook before this goes up, so it should be there now. Um, One advantage of this shorter format is I should be able to read things, rights providing, um, out in full and give you the full text. Um, Obviously, with more recent poems, there's a few tricky issues, but I don't think the estate of the bastard estate is going to come after me for um, reading out this. Okay, so here it is, De Puero Balbutente, or The Stuttering Child. Methinks tis pretty sport to hear a child, rocking a word in mouth yet undefiled. The tender racket rudely plays the sound, which weakly banded cannot back rebound. And the soft air the softer roof does kiss, with a sweet dying and a pretty miss, which hears no answer yet from the white rank of teeth not risen from their coral bank. The alphabet is searched for letters soft, to try a word before it can be wrought, and when it slides forth it goes as nice as when a man does walk upon the ice. So the gist of the poem seems to be we have an adult narrator commenting on how moving or touching it is or affecting it is to hear a child first try out language. Um, And it ends uh, suggesting that when they do get the hang of it, it will signal uh, an end of innocence. It's a 12-line poem, Uh, made up of six couplets, rhyming couplets with the notable exception of one, Uh, ten syllables in a line, and the first line is in typical iambic pentameter, the the meter that's most associated with um, Shakespeare. What interests me about this poem is the techniques Bastard uses to tell his story, Um, the most obvious being rhyme. If you look down the end words of each line you have child undefiled sound rebound kiss miss rank bank soft wrought and then nice ice return to rhyme at the end obviously what sticks out is that soft wrought the alphabet is searched for letters soft to try a word before it can be wrought the rest of the poem has trained us to expect coughed or aloft or croft or something like that 
Um, but instead we get wrought, which rather fittingly clangs. Given that the line is all about the child testing out words, or maybe even letters, uh, but not being able quite to wrought them, wrought as in to work, as in play right. Wrought almost lands like a like a punchline. It almost sounds like a, a child testing something out and getting it clangingly wrong. Also, the word wrought itself sounds on the ear like something torn or raw. You think of iron being wrought. It's sort of set, unshakable. And in this case, it's a unshakable clanging error. The words are also diametrically opposed, soft and wrought. Um, another technique that the poem has throughout, we have tender racket, sweet dying, pretty miss, all of these diametrically opposed words that are put together that are preparing us for that last couplet. And when it slides forth, it goes as nice as when a man does walk upon the ice, i.e. not nice at all, but trippingly, cautiously and at great peril. It's also nice, that image at the end of a man going upon the ice, um, I imagine him slipping over and it, it seems to be a parallel of a, of a foal trying to take its first steps. But here it's a, a child, human child, trying to speak its first words. And the return to the rhyme at the end of the poem also helps to tell the story. Even though we know that walking upon the ice isn't guaranteed to be nice, the very fact that the rhyme is there implies some kind of order or suggests that even if he slips over a few times, he's probably going to make it to the other side. In fact, even before we get to the nice ice rhyme, after the line to try a word before it can be wrought, it's only until halfway through the next line that we get a, another rhyme. And when it slides forth, even though this makes an alteration to the rhythm, the fact that it sounds nicely against wrought makes it seem like we're being helped back to our feet by bastard. Elsewhere, there are the nice little rhyme touches. The word rebound, when it rhymes with sound, performs its own definition. There's also a slightly uneasy effect, perhaps unintentional, but by rhyming child with undefiled. Um, and on that note, it's slightly uncertain at first in that line whether rocking a word in mouth yet undefiled, whether the undefiled part is referring to the mouth or the word. It seems for the sense of the rest of the poem that it has to be the word, um, although I have to confess with it being a reverend and one called bastard no less i did think of other connotations that might arise between child's mouths and the word defiled um but remember he was a bastard in in name only in fact called out the clergy although whether it was anything to do with that or just some other sexual uh misdeeds it is unclear um so that's rhyme i want to talk now about meter i mean this is another advantage of this shorter format. I've thought several times doing a, a Shakespeare episode, it'd be great just to slow down and do, you know, 20 minutes on a on a great speech, talk about meter a bit more. I think I touched on it a bit in The Midsummer Night's Dream, but, but not enough. So the way in which the rhythm starts in this poem is classically Shakespearean. It's in iambic pentameter, the, uh, the meter most associated with Shakespeare. Methinks tis pretty sport to hear a child. That's classic. Ten syllables, in iambic pentameter. So just as a recap then, the iambic part refers to the foot of the line. The foot is a measure of syllables that will be repeated a number of times. Uh, in pentameter, it will be repeated five times. So iambic pentameter is five sets of two syllables. Iambic doesn't just mean two, though. It means a unstressed syllable followed by a stressed one, or if you like, a short syllable followed by a long syllable 
one short, one long. Um, short being unstressed, long being stressed. So like the word baguette, um, emphasis is on the stress is on the second syllable. Methinks tis pretty sport to hear a child. That's pedantic, iambic pentameter, but you get my drift. So the expectation is that it, the poem will continue that way, but immediately, as soon as we get to the first word of the second line, we have rocking a word in mouth yet undefiled. Okay, so it ends with a bit more of a return to iambic pentameter, but that word rocking um, does a number of interesting things. First of all, it comes right on the heel of the word child, uh, and so the, our, the associations in our heads are with cradles, perhaps a, you know, a child in arms being rocked to sleep. But no, the meaning of the line is a child rocking a word around its mouth. Um, and the second interesting thing it does is, uh, again, performs the definition of the word. Methinks it is pretty sport to hear a child rocking a word in mouth yet undefiled. In order to make the line sound good, you have to put the stress on the very first syllable. It's not going to be to hear a child rocking a word in mouth yet undefiled. That sounds horrible. So you have to put the emphasis on rock, even though it goes against the um, pattern of the first line. So rocking helps to actually rock the line. Incidentally, so that little two-syllable unit with a stress on the first syllable and a, a soft or um, unstressed or short syllable on the second is called a trochee. Um, just like the, I, I am, but the other way around. So unlike baguette, it's more like bagel. We go straight back into iambic pentameter for the next two lines. The tender racket rudely plays the sound, which weakly banded cannot back rebound. And then we get to this middle section and the, the rhythm changes. It sticks just about to ten syllables. I think there's one line with nine. But um, it's not all in iambic pentameter. It, it, it changes... Um, quite a lot, actually. Uh, this is the section which I think you get a sense of the meaning reading through the poem straight away. It doesn't seem too complicated. It seems to make a kind of poetic sense. But when you try to start actually defining what is being said line by line, it starts to get a bit messy. I'll show you what I mean. So rocking a word in mouth yet undefiled, that's simple enough, even though we, we can ask whether or not uh, the undefiled bit refers to word or mouth. But then you get to the tender racket rudely plays the sound, which weakly banded cannot back rebound. At first, we've just got a sense of noise. We've got racket. Uh, the tender racket might be the, you know, the, the sweet uh, attempts of the child. But how can a sound play itself? The tender racket rudely plays the sound. We get the meaning, but it's a bit tangled. It's a bit tautologous conceiving of the line meaning that when you go further the next three or four are a real mess um so this took me a bit of looking at until i realized that it makes a lot more sense if you think of racket in the sense of a tennis racket which seems strange at first and maybe tennis historians or tennis buffs will know this but um it was a surprise to me when first reading um henry v or i think there's some tennis balls in Romeo and Juliet as well. I can't remember off the top of my head. But tennis was around. Tennis was played by Henry VIII. It was actually around a lot longer than that. There's a reference in about uh, 1400 by John Gower in a, a poem directed to Henry IV. Um, so it was it was around. Um, yeah, so it's not unfeasible that Thomas Bastard would use a, a tennis metaphor in this uh, poem. And so the word racket will have been in its 
in its tennis shoes by 1598, which is when this poem first emerged, or was first published, rather. It's just a theory, and uh, I might be wrong, but to me, this is how the sense of the poem works if you don't have a tennis racket in your mind for that line, the tender racket rudely plays the sound. Or that line, as we've said, is the sound roughly sounds itself, which weakly banded cannot back rebound. I mean, this is one of the the most confusing ones, which which uttered weakly cannot find an answer. Is that an answer in itself? Is that like a an echo, a child hearing and understanding a word for the first time, grasping it? But then it, it still has this strange physics of the noise bouncing off something. Um, and what that something is isn't really clear, although there's a few other references to that later on. And then we have... And the soft air, the softer roof does kiss. Well, if the, we're still going with racket as in sound, then we have a, a naive or innocent word that brushes a naive or innocent mouth or inside of mouth, which is, again, kind of weird and not really necessary. With a sweet dying and a pretty miss makes makes sense, with a, a pleasant cadence, um, a noble failure, um, or, yeah, attractive failure which hears no answer yet from the white rank of teeth not risen from their coral bank. This is one of the strangest lines to me, uh, especially without the sense of a of a tennis racket, which I will get back to, because if that's sound, then the child is waiting for the sound it utters to rebound off its teeth, which yeah, I just can't follow. However, substituting in a tennis racket, we have the tender racket rudely plays the sound. Now, what the racket is meant to be standing in for is up to debate, whether it's the child's ability to phrase words, whether it's the part of the child's mouth, maybe the tongue. Um, But for the purposes of this, let's describe the racket as the child's facility for speech. The tender racket rudely plays the sound. The child's facility crudely renders words, which weakly banded cannot back rebound. Now that's a totally flat line without a tennis racket in. Said poorly, it doesn't bounce off anything. But if it's a tennis racket that's weakly banded, then of course it cannot rebound. Whether banded means just held a bit limply, so the the ball uh, the ball, if we take the ball to mean the word um, just the object that the child's trying to get its mouth around um, if the tennis tennis racket is held weakly, the ball just flops off. There's no no rebound but it could also mean weakly banded as in weakly strung, like which reinforces all, all of these references to softness. In fact, soft is repeated at least three times, I think. The softness of the child's uh, sounds, but also mouth, is set against um, the hardness of some of the other words. There's the white rank of teeth, um, ice, of course, and then the word wrought, which we've already talked about. It seems to make a bit more sense to me if you start thinking of the child unable to utter consonants in particular, or maybe just hard uh, letters. If you think about how a toothless infant talks, they are in sort of warbled vowels rather than harder, uh, plosive um, consonants. Then we have the soft air, the softer roof does kiss. It's a nightmare of a line without a tennis racket. But uh, with one, it almost seems to me like a ball passing through an unstrung racket or just, you know, falling limply off a weakly strung one. Maybe not, but um, with a racket in mind, we at least get a sense of that sort of soft collision, a, a dead ball. Um, and I think if, if, the, if the racket is the facility or the tongue, it makes even the sl- slightly strange, um, here's no answer yet from the white bank of teeth, 
make a little bit more sense because if you try and zoom in on the process of a, a toothless child talking, you have the air, the initial sound created, but it needs to be finished with the or rounded off with the with the tongue connecting to the tooth, which makes me think of the start of um, Lolita. Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins, my sin, my soul. Lolita, the tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth. Lolita. Or O-E-A, as this child in our bastard poem, in our bastard poem, um, might say. Where did we get to then? So, tennis. Yeah, you might not buy the tennis. Um, It is only a theory. It's worth mentioning that the poem starts with the line um, calling the child's effort, a, a pr- watching the child's effort rather, a pretty sport, uh, which might be reaching. But I also think further down in the two lines, which weakly banded cannot back rebound and the soft air, the softer roof does kiss. Maybe I'm getting carried away with the tennis idea, but that, to me that actually does sound like um, a rally, uh, which weakly banded cannot back rebound. Uh, followed by, and the soft air, the softer air does kiss. Softer roof, sorry. To me, that sounds like an adult's firm uh, tennis form, followed by a child's weaker imitation. The first line, we have the alliteration, but also the stresses. Ban, can, back, bound. And then in the following line, we have an expectation of a rhythm that will We'll reach it, but instead we have, the, and the soft air, the softer roof does kiss. Not only are the, the hits, if you like, in that line fewer and softer, but also less imaginative. Instead of ban, can, back, bound, we just have soft and softer. But they're clearly meant to mimic the same effect of the, uh, the line that precedes it, which, I don't know, it does sound like a, uh, like a tender bracket. I've just remembered that um, John Gower reference to to tennis scoring um, was the, I think, the first use of the word love. Um, again, tennis aficionados will uh, probably know this, but um, those of the uninitiated, love uh, in tennis scoring comes from the French l'oeuf, as in an egg. Uh, l'oeuf, because it, love means zero, which is just an, a nice thing to have in mind about this, uh, this poem about a embryonic innocence. Whether or not the tennis um, stuff holds up, it is a rally of sorts, this poem, because we're going in between the subject of the poem, the child, and the narrator, quite clearly an adult. Inevitably, we, we're going to think of him as Thomas Bastard himself. So forgetting the, the, um, the tennis stuff, the rhythm and the rhyme scheme passes in between these two. And in fact, those lines I mentioned earlier where the, uh, the rhythm falls away are, funnily enough, the lines in which we are in which um, Bastard is describing the way in which the child speaks. And the soft air, the softer roof does kiss. That's the first one where the the rhythm falls away. We have uh, two unstressed syllables, and the, and then two stressed ones, soft air. Maybe you'd have air unstressed, but I, I can't really make it scan that way. Then the following line, with a sweet dying and a pretty miss, is different again. We have to sort of join little bits of a line together. So it's when we're uh, this close, this intimate, this 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 far, well, I mean, literally far inside the child's mouth that the rhythm falls away. And it's almost as if the uh, the poet is creating for us a sense of formlessness, a, a dropping off of um, controlled rhythm. Is, of course, controlled. He knows exactly what he's doing, uh, as he does when we have this uh, example of enjambement, a line that runs off 
without a, a break into another line, which hears no answer yet from the white rank of teeth not risen from their coral bank. The effect of this is to actually make the teeth delayed. They, it, we, it takes a whole line to get to them. It makes it sound like, yes, they are taking their time in rising from their coral bank, which is incidentally a rather lovely way to describe gums. Um, so as I said, the rhythm reinstates itself for the alphabet is search for letters soft to try a word before it can be wrought. Then we have one more drop-off in the rhythm, for, and when it slides forth, it goes as nice as when a man does walk upon the ice. What's nice about that is not only the rhyme we talked about before with the fourth and wrought, that kind of fourth comes halfway through the line that follows wrought, but we also, again, we, we have a sense of it, it feeling like what's happened when it slides forth, comma, we've had a comma in the middle of a line, it's sort of, it feels uh, unsettling. We haven't had that, I mean, we had of teeth earlier, but that was felt completed, it was completing another line. Whereas this, who knows where we're sliding forth when we hear that. And then we get tripped up again, of course, by it goes as nice as when a man does walk upon the ice. The other clever thing about that is that just as the rhyme stick scheme comes back, nice and ice, and just as the rhythm also comes back, the iambic pentameter for as when a man does walk upon the ice, the whole point of the poem seems to come together in that the adult who perhaps has been rallying with this child, perhaps like any adult, he has been saying, um, you know, grown-up words to a child, speaking to them as if they're an adult and, and seeing the child's attempts to uh, phrase those back, hit those back. I'm going to persevere with the tennis thing. Um, but to end the poem like that, with prim and proper iambic pentameter and a rhyme, it almost serves as a acknowledgement that what will rob the child of the innocence will be its ability to conjure with form and rhyme and how all of these slippery surfaces and secret meanings that you can create with things like rhyme. Um, the word nice rhymed with ice in such a way makes us expect something pleasant's going to happen uh, and then see that it's not. But because it still rhymes, it has that kind of authority. Rhyme is, is, is beguiling. That's why so many commercials have rhyme, because it's we hear an assurance in, in rhyme, even if it's a stupid brand name being rhymed with some, a word that is just flattering or, or noble. We ascribe to that a kind of intelligence. Um, so yeah, that does seem to be Thomas Bastard saying, admitting that uh, he knows that the words now that are softly wrought, they, they may not rhyme, but they have a, an innocence that will be lost as soon as the child gains the ability to do things like rhyme the word nice and ice or um, maybe have a tennis racket stand in for a tongue, or um, manipulate a, a rhythm into rocking a reader off guard. Anyway, I thought that was a lovely um, poem, uh, and a nice place to start with these. Uh, let me know if you if you liked it, if you've got any thoughts, if you disagree with me about tennis, etc. Um, and if you'd like to hear any poems or other short works, whether it's a speech or a, or a short story, an article, that kind of thing you'd like done in this sort of slightly more um, spontaneous way. It's not totally spontaneous. I did make some notes, but it's not scripted. Um, not sure what will be next. Probably Cock and Bull. It's been quite a long gestating one, that one on Will Self. Um, I just haven't got around to editing it. If you've liked what you've heard, we have got quite a big back catalogue now. Uh, of episodes on everyone from Dickens to Shakespeare. We've done uh, Wind in the Willows, Kenneth Graham recently, Philip Roth, Kafka. So 
If you'd like to support us, please subscribe on iTunes, leave us a review, um, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and drop us an email at earreadthis at gmail.com. And, and thanks to Thomas Bastard for providing today's uh, little poem. I hope this tender racket hasn't too rudely played the sound. Uh, see you next time. Happy reading. Thank you.